Arsenal for Democracy is freely available weekly at arsenalfordemocracy.com or Apple and Stitcher. And we're supported by some listeners at patreon.com slash arsenalfordemocracy for $3 a month. The show is recorded and produced by me, Bill Humphrey, in Newton, Massachusetts. Our theme music is produced by Stuntbird. Follow us on Facebook or at AFD Radio on Twitter. The show is not affiliated with any campaign committee, and each participant's opinions are their own. This man is your land. This man is my land. California. New York Island. The Redwood Forest. Gulf Stream Waters. This land was made you and me. You're listening to Arsenal for Democracy, episode 438, recorded on Sunday, August 21st, 2022. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Joining me on the line from Idaho, as always, is Rachel. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Bill. Just a quick note for our listeners. Uh, We're not sure the exact schedule coming up in the next two weeks. I'm going to be traveling out of the country. We'll have a lot more information on that uh, once I return. But in the meantime, we're not sure if there's going to be a couple weeks off or maybe another uh, bonus episode released to the main feed. Um, But uh, bear with us on that. We'll have a lot of great content coming up after that. We've been doing a lot of preparation work over the past several weeks for some really great upcoming episodes. But these were things where we needed more time to finish the readings, the research, put the notes together, and also we needed to literally just have time to record which wasn't realistically probably going to happen. So we might have another episode, another new episode coming out in the next week or two, uh, but don't count on that. And uh, we'll be back in uh, September with some more great content. Uh, This week we're talking about the industrial nail and nail guns. So in our December 2021 episode on bungalows and workers' cottages, we cited, as we often do, Robert J. Gordon's 2016 book, The Rise and Fall of American Growth, which gets into the weeds on the material factor costs and consumer retail prices of goods over the course of the Industrial Revolution in its various phases. And he mentioned that cheap nails dramatically cut the cost of building single-family homes, with one study finding that the price of nails in the United States fell by 90% in real terms between 1830 and 1930. A once precious material input for construction prior to the 1870s became cheap and ubiquitous over the course of the early 1890s to the early 1910s. In that episode, number 402, we said that we would probably return to the topic to take a closer look, and that brings us to today's episode on the industrialization of nail fasteners over the 19th century and eventually the rise of nail guns in the late 20th century. Rachel, can you walk us through the early history of the nail and how we arrive at the industrialization of the manufacture of nails? Yeah, so to go way, way, way far back, um, nails have been around for thousands of years, uh, with the oldest discovered nails dated back to around 3400 BCE, uh, found in Egypt. Uh, These earliest nails were made out of bronze, and they had the same basic design as modern nails. Long, straight, narrow metal shafts with a point to drive into materials and a flat head on the other end. Uh, Throughout much of history, nails were manufactured by independent blacksmiths or by even more specialized skilled craft workers called nailers. Metal workers would hammer out the shafts of metal, and then nailers would create the final nail shape. Uh, This uh, long, arduous process made nails relatively scarce and expensive compared to modern nails. Also heavy, which is important when it comes to transportation. 
yeah, um, it, it wasn't really easy to make fine handmade nails. They, they were pretty heavy. They were pretty big. They were pretty cumbersome. And um, so this, this scarcity, this expense um, had some pretty big ramifications during the American colonial era when nails in the colonies were sourced from Britain. Um, when the American colonies declared independence and kicked off the American Revolution, Britain cut off the supply of nails to their former colonies. And as a result, nails became very hard to come by, so much so that older buildings and houses would be burned down to salvage the nails for new builds. Um, so it was pretty dire there for, for quite some time. Um, in 1795, an American named Jacob Perkins invented the cut nail process. Uh, this process involved cutting nails from sheets of raw iron. This process allowed companies to manufacture nails, and thus nails were, were able to be produced much more quickly and efficiently, and also required much less skill than the traditional work done by nailers. Um, so there was kind of a, a de-skilling process happening, and this was still the, the fairly early stages of that. So let's go into how the cut nail process worked. Um, large sheets of metal, um, around two feet in length and with the width slightly longer than the desired nail length, were fed into a machine, and a, a lever cut a triangular piece that would form the shaft of the nail, um, a second lever held the nail in place, and a third lever, lever put the head on the nail. And then the sheet of metal was flipped 180 degrees to repeat the cutting process. So kind of creating this uh, kind of back and forth triangular cut. So that way there wasn't an uneven cut. It, the triangular shape would tessellate really nicely with the, the sheet of metal. And um, in the show notes, I'm linking a pretty cool demo video um, of a nail-making machine that um, is actually from a right after the Civil War, and it's still in production today. So it's pretty impressive. It's made out of cast iron parts. It's very hardy. It's made to last for a long time. So it's a very interesting video, and it helps to kind of conceptualize um, what I'm talking about. Um, so I would highly recommend that you check it out. However, with this cut nail process, there's still a lot of human labor involved in feeding the strips into the machine. Since these sheets of metal are only around two feet in length, um, it gets cut into the nail pieces pretty quickly, and so you have to constantly be feeding the sheets of metal into the machine. So the next big innovation in nails um, and nail manufacture is the wire nail. So wire nails greatly reduce the human labor involved in nail manufacture. So giant coils of steel wire were cut down to the desired length and shaped by this machine with on the only human interaction required was in setting up and turning on the machine. Um, so very little human interaction, very little hands-on work. And so because of this less hands-on time during nail production, people switched their focus to quality assurance and quality control. So they would look over the finished product, which just basically got dumped into big troughs and so they had to like look through the finished nails and make sure that they met specifications. And they also had to inspect the cutting blades of the machines and made sure they were sharp, made sure they were still cutting well. Um, so the focus definitely became much more into quality assurance, quality control, rather than that hands-on crafting of the nail. So the nails produced from wi this wire nail cutting process are a lot smaller than cut nails and have weaker holding power but wire nails came around when thinner timbers were starting to be used in construction and other forms of fastening were available if stronger fastening was needed. 
And another big advantage was because the wire nails were so smaller, um, they split the wood less often. So it was a really big advantage in construction, especially at a time when these like thinner timbers were being used. Um, we had a really good uh, lumber and timber um, episode as well that kind of goes into into the lumber process and and how it was also going through a lot of innovation during this time frame. Um, so all these things came together to um, really speed up the construction process. Now, can you explain what is the wire aspect of it? Yeah. So um, at this time, well, actually, during the cut nail process, a lot of the nails were made out of iron. And um, around the time of the wire nail, uh, steel was coming into um, prominence as a material in construction. So um, steel is a lot softer. It can be, it's more malleable. It can be molded. It can be drawn into a wire. And that's when this wire nail um, process came into be, into play. So um, I found a nationalparks.gov uh, article that kind of talked about the history of the nail and also went into the process of the wire nail production. I'm quoting from that. With the rapid development of the Bessemer process for producing inexpensive soft steel during the 1880s, however, the popularity of using iron for nail making quickly waned. By 1886, 10% of the nails produced in the United States were made of soft steel wire. Within six years, more steel wire nails were being produced than iron cut nails. By 1913, 90% were wired nails. Cut nails are still made today, however, with that type B method that I described earlier. Um, these cut I, these cut nails are commonly used for fastening hardwood flooring and for various other specialty uses. So there was a big wave of, of the soft steel wire nail revolution, and it just kind of took over and very quickly and became the, the most popular type of nail in production. All right. So with these wire nails, you can very efficiently just sort of chop, chop, chop a section of wire and you get a nail instead of having to cut it out of a sheet to a pattern uh, and get the right shape and everything. You just cut a section, put on a head, make sure that the other end is sized correctly, and then you're done and you get various thicknesses based on the thickness of the wire. We're going to come back in a moment to talk about the production of wire itself. Um, but there's some interesting things that result from changes in nails not only the construction impacts that we've talked about but from a modern standpoint we now have a significant amount of archaeological information derived just from nails alone uh, and this brings us to the topic of dating old buildings based on nail era now this has been something that's been going on for quite some time there's actually a national park service document from 1968 titled nail chronology as an aid to dating old buildings uh, and i'll link to that for listener reference in the notes at arsenalfordemocracy.com as always in a pdf but that kind of stuff has been superseded by uh further research from the uh, archaeology and historians community um, so for that we'll turn to an article published back in 2002 in historical archaeology by william hampton adams uh, the title of that paper is machine cut nails and wire nails american production and use for dating 19th century and early 20th century sites and as we go through this it's going to also tell us a lot more about the transition from cut nails to wire nails uh, and various innovations therein. 
the author notes that nails are among the most commonly occurring artifacts found at 19th and 20th century sites, and as such, nails are an important data source often overlooked by some historical archaeologists. Now, the abstract alone is pretty interesting, so I'll quote that in full uh, before we get into some of the details of this paper. Quote, the commonly cited sources used by archaeologists for dating nails have been rendered outdated by later research. Machine-cut and headed nails date from 1815 onwards, while wire nails date from 1819 onward. Historical archaeologists need to, however, avoid the simplistic use of invention dates and patent dates and focus instead on the mass production dates. There can be a significant amount of time between an invention and its first production, and an even greater time until production figures are significantly high enough to affect the archaeological record. Uh, and I'll just pause there and note that that's been true for a lot of the topics that we've looked at, right? We looked at various uh, chemicals uh, that were invented in the uh, mid-19th century, generally not receiving significant mass production for decades, if not half a century, after they were invented um, for various reasons. So that's an important point, is that there's a big difference between when something is patented and when it actually starts to materially affect the real world in a significant way uh, and one that is visible in the archaeological record uh, among other historical aspects. Continuing in the abstract here, usually wire nails are ascribed an 1850s beginning date, but that date is both too early and too late. While some wire nails were produced in 1819, no significant quantities were produced in the United States until the mid-1880s. Thus, we need to extend the manufacturing date back some 30 years with the caveat that the effective manufacturing date range begins in the 1880s. By examining production figures for wire nails, a model is generated for dating sites built of machine cut nails. This model is then examined using data from dozens of sites in the USA and Canada. Just as important, the model provides clues to recycling activity and access to different manufacturing sources. Uh, end quote from the abstract. So a lot of interesting stuff that is covered in this paper. Um, and although it heavily focuses on the U.S., there's also a lot of cross comparison with Canada uh, because a lot of uh, Canada didn't have very good transportation infrastructure for a long time. So uh, there were many places where the technology that was being widely adopted in the United States was not being generally used yet in those parts of Canada, uh, or they were outright importing production, uh, sometimes late, sometimes early, uh, from Britain. Uh, so there were certain ways in which Canadian sites differed significantly, and that also provides a lot of interesting information for archaeologists. So the paper details that a lot of different aspects of a nail found at an archaeological site can help narrow down the potential range of years that nail was produced, and thus likely when it was used. Little changes in the production methods and styles affected the cross-section, grain, sides, burrs, neck, head, and end of nail. Another important detail noted in this paper is that the wire nail industry, as I alluded to earlier, depended on the rise of the wider wire industry, with things like telegraph lines and barbed wire contributing to that in the period of the 1850s to the 1870s. Quote, the rise of wire nails depended upon the broader technology of wire production. Once wire was made in quantity, then wire nails could become a common spin-off industry. The invention of barbed wire in 1873 and the production of wire nails probably accounted for the rapidity of the rise of wire itself. Wire had been made before steel be became a mass-produced article, but the quantities had been small up to 1890. 
So while the development of a wire industry had to precede the mass production of the wire nail, in the end, the wire nail and barbed wire stimulated further usages of wire. This is a classic feedback loop in technological development between such seemingly unrelated industries as the cattle industry, the building industry, and the telecommunications industry, end quote. So I thought that was pretty interesting and something that I wouldn't have necessarily thought about immediately, but it makes sense once it's spelled out. Um, so again, regarding the timeline, there's a lot of variation here, uh, again, between patents versus mass production, adoption of these technologies, and so forth. French patents for wire nails date as far back as 1819, but that did not translate into mass production even in France until the 1840s. Mass production in Britain of wire nails began in the 1850s, and wide-scale mass production of wire nails in the U.S. began in the 1880s, although there were some imported production machines in the U.S., by the late 1870s. Quote, the earliest American-made wire nails were not used in building construction, being limited to use in making small items like cigar boxes and for packing crates made from soft woods, end quote. So that was interesting as well and not something I would have thought about. We're obviously mostly focusing this episode on nails for use in construction projects, but they also did use it for uh, assembling little boxes and, and uh, nailing together uh, shipping pallets and crates and things like that. Uh, quoting again, not only from the article, but from a quote within that article, uh, which is uh, sourced and cited as well, uh, wire nails were replacing cut nails for two reasons. They're different shape and they're different material. They were widely criticized for their lack of holding power, but this was offset by their greater ability to penetrate wood without splitting it. They also weighed less than cut nails of equivalent length, which meant a larger number of nails in a pound and consequent lower freight charges. For these reasons, the production of cut nails reached a peak in 1886 and fell thereafter, and the production of wire rods for wire nails rose. End quote. Uh, quoting again from the author of this paper, the transition from iron to steel happened in the mid-1880s, uh, and then that author quotes another author, Steel was of increasing quality and cheapness. The price of steel nail plate probably fell below that of wrought iron plate soon after the price of steel rails passed that of iron rails, end quote. The 2002 paper, as I said, also argues for further regional analysis of the lag times in accessibility of mass-produced nails of various types based on transportation difficulty and costs varying significantly in certain places depending on access to navigable rivers and railroads or relative isolation from the uh, sites of the factories. Um, a few weeks ago when I was in California, I went to the California State uh, Railroad Museum, which I'd been to before, but they had renovated it a few years ago for the 150th anniversary of the Transcontinental Railroad being completed. And one interesting point that they made with that, and that is uh, something that was completed at the end of the 1860s, was that almost all of the materials for the Transcontinental Railroad had to be imported into California because California at the time didn't have its own factories to produce those things. So for the most part, those were being shipped uh, around the world, or at least uh, around South America or uh, across Panama in some cases, depending on what size of a thing you were importing. And that's an important point when you're looking at 19th century United States history, uh, and to an even greater extent, Canadian history, uh, is that there were certain areas of the country that, although they gradually increasingly got more connected with infrastructure for a long period of time, these places were totally cut off from the factory production uh, that was happening in other parts of the country. So there are certain places where technologies were adopted very quickly that 
were not adopted immediately in those uh, more out-of-the-way places uh, for quite some time. And that's a really interesting point, not just for nails, but for sort of the broader picture of things uh, in the Industrial Revolution and its proliferation in terms of produced goods and materials in the United States. Most of the rest of the paper puts to the test the various claims about the ability to date building sites based on types of nails found at the site by looking at a number of specific archaeological sites and comparing nails found there to other sources of information. The author also strongly contends throughout this 2002 paper that nails are a better source of dating the construction of a site than other types of artifacts commonly found within a site, such as chinaware and glassware, because these often seem to have been made and owned for several years or even a decade and a half prior to the construction based on the date of nails. Uh, in other words, people usually weren't, it would seem, buying a whole new set of china and glasses to go with their brand new home. And that's also sort of an interesting thing for the archaeology of nails to inadvertently uh, kind of reveal. Now, Rachel, you also read an academic paper on uh, wire nails, and uh, I was hoping you could talk a, a little bit more about that as well. Yeah, I read an article titled The Wire Nails Revolution, the History 1898 through 2000 by Jorgen Burkhardt at the Museum Vestfid in Denmark. Um, so he was mainly focused on wire nail production in Denmark, but there were some um, greater trends that transcended the country. And he also mentioned some statistics for the U.S. So quoting from that article, the first machine for wire nails in the United States was built in 1851, and wire nail machines mainly made the smaller sizes of nails up to the 1870s. Steel came to the production of cut nails. In 1884, they formed 5% of the cut nail production, but the share increased to 69% in 1889. The first steel wire nails were produced in 1875, but cut nails still dominated over wire nails, and in 1886, they had their production peak. First, in 1892, the production of wire nails exceeded the production of cut nails, but by 1920, cut nails still had 8% of the market. The dominating nail types have given archaeologists a tool to date old buildings, as Bill just mentioned, although the reuse of old nails in periods with several different types make the method unreliable. So I just want to kind of point out that there were like two major innovations happening. So there was the material transition from iron to steel, as well as this transition to cut from cut nails to wire nails. And they weren't happening exactly at the same time, but they were happening really close to the same time. So there were two major big transitions happening in in the world of nail manufacture happening at from the 1850s to the, I would say, like the 1910s, 1920s. So um, quoting again from the article, the wire nails had several advantages. The nails consisted of less metal, so customers got many more when they bought a kilogram of nails. A cautious estimate tells that on average, a kilogram of nails provided around 192-inch cut nails, but 300 wire nails. The thinner wire nails were easier to use and did not splinter wood so easy. At the same time, the price of steel declined. A study from the U.S. shows a fall in the relative price of nails by a factor of about 15 times from the mid-1700s to about 1950. The declines were large enough to enable the development of other products. 
Apparently, the cheap nails gave low-income people in the U.S. a possibility to build their own homes in the 1870s by using a form of construction called balloon framing instead of employing expensive professional builders and carpenters. And that's a topic that we have talked about previously as well. So the nail is really the linchpin, um, the fastener that is uh, enabling all these other different innovations at the same time. Uh, quoting again from the article, a general nail machine, as one from the German company Waffios, originally had an operating rate of 700 revolutions, or nails, per minute. Rebuilt machines could reach operating speeds of 900 revolutions when small nails were produced. Um, more than a thousand different types of nails and sizes are standard on the market now. More nails have been developed for special purposes made to customers' specifications. When new building materials become available, the manufacturers develop new types. For instance, hooks and roller shade wood roller pins. The fastening of gutters needs special design nails. Other heads are used for decorative effects. Many nails have a smooth shank, making them easiest to drive and offer the least pull-out resistance. Two-prong shanks make nails or fencing staples useful for attaching mesh fences to wooden posts and frames. Most nails have a diamond point, which is a four-sided pyramid. Some have a blunter point to prevent splitting certain woods. And this, uh, this upcoming point I found very interesting. In Germany, companies in the nail business occasionally made cartel agreements. For some years, the companies had agreement regarding the sale, and customers could only buy nails to the cartel central office. Uh, similar national cartel agreements gave the inspiration for international cartels. Most of the important nail producers in Europe met in 1930 and came to an agreement. The negotiations ended with an agreement regarding the distribution of the sale of the total European market. This strong agreement pressed the American and British companies to join the cartel organized by the International Export Federation, International Wire Export Company, since 1932. So I found that also pretty interesting. We've talked about pricing cartels before, and the nail manufacturers also engaged in these cartel agreements for pricing. Yeah, so let's talk about the uh, domestic production market in the United States and how that consolidated. I think... Uh, Although we weren't necessarily aware of there being a monopoly in nail production, I don't think either of us was surprised to learn that, in fact, there was eventually one. Uh, so let's look at the development of the uh, wire nail market in the United States uh, in the period that we've just been talking about. Uh, so looking now from an account around 1891, when wire nails were about to overtake the cut nail in the market in a book titled The Manufacture of Iron in All Ages by James A. Swank of the American Wire Nail Company, he said, quote, very great difficulty was experienced in inducing the hardware trade to recognize the wire brad and wire nail as a saleable commodity. From 1878 to 1880, the growth of the wire nail was very slow and it was attended with many difficulties. Deep-rooted prejudices of all kinds had to be overcome. It was not until the year 1883 or 1884 that the wire nail came into the market prominently as a competitor of the cut nail, and it was at this time that the standard wire nail was instituted. Each successive year after this, the demand for wire nails increased phenomenally and in fact passed beyond the wildest hopes of the most sanguine. Down to 1883, all the cut nails manufactured in this country in commercial quantities were made of iron, but in that year, cut nails made of Bessemer steel and others made of combined iron and steel were sold in American markets, end quote. So by the end of the 1890s, after a round of corporate consolidations and cartelizations that followed the Panic of 1893 and a glut of overproduction, plus what the New York Times in 1895 called unnatural overpricing, 
almost all wire nail production in the United States fell under the monopoly control of the American Steel and Wire Company, which was shortly thereafter rolled into the U.S. Steel Mega Merger. An advanced nail factory in the United States, in the era before production offshoring due to containerization, could produce several tons of nails per week on machines that each manufactured nails at a rate of several nails per second on average. And so many nails would be produced that one factory might dominate the entire market for hundreds of miles, such as the Texas Nail and Wire Company in Galveston, Texas, where the closest competition was about 700 miles away in Birmingham, Alabama. So basically every hardware store, every construction worker, etc., is getting their nails within that radius of hundreds and hundreds of miles from this one factory at the Texas Nail and Wire Company in Galveston, Texas. And there's some interesting photos uh, in some of the links that we've included as well. Um, but now that we've crossed into the second half of the 20th century, we need to talk about the other big innovation in nailing-related technology, and that is the nail gun. Now, at the time of recording, there has recently been something that has put nail guns in the news. I'm sure that this will have passed into the distant, foggy memories that no one remembers this even happened, but it did certainly uh, prompt us to look into finally doing an episode on this, although we had talked about nails, as I said, on the Bungalows episode. Uh, but it's time for us now to talk about nail guns. Uh, so something that I also didn't expect to find uh, was uh, yet another intersection between the civilian industry inventions and defense contracts. That's obviously something we've talked a lot about in the context of things like canned foods and air conditioning for ammunition production in World War I and things like that. So the nail gun was invented to help build the Spruce Goose prototype for Howard Hughes, more properly known as the Hughes H-4 Hercules cargo plane prototype. Its development at Hughes Aircraft during and after World War II was funded by tens of millions of dollars in federal defense contract money. Now, famously, this was built, and this was the joking, annoying name for it being the Spruce Goose, although it was not made of spruce, uh, was the that this was mostly built out of wood, uh, both to save on other important metal materials, but also to uh, make it a very light aircraft uh, relative to its size. And... Uh, in addition to experimenting around with new plywood products for the implementation of the design, the company's civil engineer, Morris Pinus, designed a nail gun to fire temporary nails into the delicate plywood while glue was curing without pushing the wood pieces out of place through repeated manual hammering. This is one of the challenges, besides the risk of splitting wood that you get with uh, hammered nails, is that you have to bang it repeatedly and therefore you are potentially banging it out of place or out of alignment with where it's supposed to be, uh, especially with plywood, but also even with other types of things like two by fours and so forth. So one of the big advantages of nail guns is that you don't have that happening uh, and you get the nail all the way in in one swift shot, essentially. Now, even if you're thinking about nail guns in terms of their intended construction use, as opposed to the aforementioned recent vigilante action against the FBI field office with a nail gun, uh, which was unsuccessful. Uh, nail guns cause tens of thousands of ER-level accidents in the U.S. annually, costing hundreds of millions of dollars, essentially, once again, bringing the war home to the United States. Uh, but on a more serious note, Rachel is going to walk us through how nail guns work, 
the potential risks associated with them and how they came to prominence and prevalence in the construction industry, in the civilian, I should say, construction industry uh, beyond these defense contractor spaces that it originated in. So after the invention of the Spruce Goose prototype nail gun in 1944, various manufacturers scrambled to get a viable commercial nail gun to market. Uh, so this technology wasn't entirely new. This like air pneumatic force um, driving a fastener into a material already existed for air staplers or the staple gun. Um, and this also used kind of quote unquote clips of fasteners that you could just kind of shoot serially. Um, so the technology already existed, the concept already existed. So the main challenge with nail guns was reducing recoil while also producing enough power to drive the nail. Obviously with staples, not a lot of force is needed, so there wouldn't, there wouldn't be a lot of recoil created. Um, so the first success was the pneumatic nailer. Um, it's interestingly spelled. It's spelled kind of like new metal, N-U. Um, and this was invented in the early 50s by Bill Burnison. Um, other big names in the 1950s through to the 1970s. So again, that big lag time between the patent and the actual um, technology being invented and that kind of wide-scale adoption, wide-scale commercialization. Um, there were, it was a few decades. So other big names in the nail gun industry were Powerline, Fastnail, and Spotnails. And Spotnails uh, pretty successfully solved the recoil problem um, actually by borrowing from the engineering principles used in ejection seats in fighter airplanes. So a similar, there was a similar kind of uh, needle to thread. The seats had to generate enough power to clear the plane, but they also had to ensure the survival of the pilot. Um, so there was that kind of fine line that they had to walk. So I thought that was pretty interesting that, um, they, again, the, the civilian world and the defense contracting engineering world um, kind of borrowing from each other. Um, so, as I mentioned, uh, the first commercial pneumatic nail guns became available in the 1950s. Uh, the earliest stand-up versions fired 40 to 60 nails per minute into subflooring. So, these stand-up versions were stationary. They weren't kind of like the nail gun you, the handheld nail gun that you kind of envision when you think of, like, construction work. Um, these were stationary. They were made, they were kind of purpose-built to quickly put nails into um, a larger object. So another um, use was like building crates or pallets for shipping. Um, the the nail gun itself didn't need to move. It just needed to quickly put assemble these crates, basically. Um, the first handheld nail gun versions appeared in the 1960s. Um, design steadily improved to fire more and different gauges of nails. And eventually cordless versions appeared. Nail guns have been powered by electricity, compressed air, and even explosive gases, which I'll get into in a minute. Um, in 2019, a New Zealand-based company called Airbo introduced a portable, rechargeable pneumatic nail gun that doesn't require a tether to an air hose. Um, using advanced valve technology, the Airbo nail gun employs just a gram of air to fire a nail with compressed air stored in the tool itself, and it recharges on a compatible air compressor. So that's pretty impressive. Um, also, another uh, pretty big thing is just the fact that there's two different types of nail guns. So I guess a few years ago, CDC um, posted kind of a safety article about nail guns, and they cited a quote saying that nail guns shoot at about 140 uh, feet per second. And apparently they got a lot of pushback and... Um, 
some people were claiming that nail guns can shoot up to 1,400 feet per second, about 10 times more. And so the CDC wrote a blog about how they kind of went down this rabbit hole, um, kind of following the breadcrumbs in, in citations and in journal papers and articles, following um, where the source of this 1,400 feet per second um, metric came from. And what it boils down to is there are two types of nail guns. Um, there's the powder actuated tool or a PAT, and this actually shoots uh, comparable to a gun blank charge. So there is an actual like combustion uh, reaction with powder, so therefore powder actuated tool. And then there's also the more common pneumatic nail guns or PNGs. So these PATs are capable of high velocity charges, but they're mainly used for specialized tasks such as driving nails into concrete or metal. So the pneumatic nail guns are much more common. And, and like I said, they're only capable of propulsion of about a tenth of velocity of the PATs. So many papers on nail gun injuries didn't actually distinguish between the PAT and PNG involved incidents, which led to a long lineage of citations that didn't actually take the type of nail gun into account when discussing nail gun velocity. Um, all of this is to say PNGs are still very much capable of causing serious injury or death. It's just not quite at the same velocity and force as, say, like a gun blank level charge, like the powder actuated tools. Um, they're still very, very dangerous. Don't uh, Obviously, you don't want to um, play around with pneumatic nail guns. They can still cause very serious injury or death. Um, also, we found a 1998 article um, talking with Tom Silva from This Old House. And he talked about how he didn't adopt nail guns for home framing until well into the like the early 1970s. So again, there, there wasn't wide-scale adoption until kind of later in the game. Um, so this was a, from a tampabay.com uh, article, pretty interesting, um, quoting from that. Freedom came to nail guns in 1986 when the Passload Corporation introduced nail gun that functioned without hose or compressor. The gun is powered by internal combustion, just like the granddaddy of all portable machinery, the gasoline engine. Pulling the Passload's trigger releases MAPP gas, or methylacetylene propadiene, from a disposable fuel cell cylinder and injects the gas into the combustion chamber. Simultaneously, a spark detonates a mix and plunges a piston against the nail head, driving it home in a lightning-quick stroke. Uh, so, Passload makes its impulse gas-powered guns in two versions, a framing nailer and a smaller model for finish work. The smaller gun gets about 2,500 shots per $7 cylinder gas cylinder, the larger gun, 1,200. And then, this article was written in 1998, so take it with a grain of salt. Um, quoting, last year, Porter Cable began manufacturing gas nailers called BAMers, a framer, two finish guns, and a crown stapler for assembling cabinets and holding insulation. All use MAPP gas in a cylinder similar to the pass loads, but they operate without fans, motors, or batteries. A pressure-sensitive piezoelectric crystal, similar to that in a gas barbecue grill, generates a spark. The air and fuel are mixed and exhausted as the tool is plunged, so cocking the gun requires 23 pounds of push. So those are just some of the fairly interesting um, technological upgrades. Um, so it's kind of interesting how it went from compressed air attached to a hose to kind of this combustion gas um, event. And now, it, starting in 2019, we're kind of returning to a hoseless compressed air model. Um, so it's kind of interesting how the 
how the technology evolved over the decades. Well, Rachel, that's going to bring us to the end of the episode. But do you have any closing thoughts today about nails or nail guns? I think we learned a lot while researching this episode, and it was pretty fascinating. Um, I really uh, was surprised to learn about the cartelization, the price fixing, basically. Um, it's, it's something that we've kind of seen in other industries. So it was it was pretty interesting to see to see it pop up in this industry as well. Yeah, I mean, so many themes recurring in this for something as relatively simple and straightforward as a nail. These same topics about industrial consolidation, cartel price fixing, the role of defense contractors in this uh, civil industry space, and, you know, just these broader trends around the other ancillary technologies that led to this technology, and then how this technology's changes led to significant changes in uh, other parts of American life as well. So just a truly fascinating topic. And as always, arsenalfordemocracy.com, when the episode goes up, there will be a PDF with this episode that uh, includes the citations to everything that we've linked. And uh, as we said, there's a couple videos in there as well about uh, the production of hand-cut nails and also the production of wire nails. Now, as I said at the top of the episode, just recapping in case someone zoned out at the beginning of the episode, not sure when we're going to be back uh, with a new episode. It might be this coming weekend. It might be in a few weeks in September uh, because I will be going out of the country. Uh, But we've got a lot of cool content in the hopper, ready to go. Uh, We've been reading a lot of books over the past couple months and taking a lot of notes on that. Uh, And so we've got some more great content coming up. Just uh, not able to put that together in time to get that in the queue uh, before I left. Um, But thanks for sticking with us. And uh, please check back uh, when we do have new episodes coming up soon. Rachel, thanks for being on this week. Thanks for having me, as always.